any steps to reopen that you are now permitted to do so based on what stage in the uh, guidelines we're at with respect to reopening and um, from physical workplaces because the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act still is out there and it can provide fines of up to $10 million for uh, businesses that don't comply with a closure order and it, the legislation is similar to um, to the you know the Occupational Health and Safety Act, for instance, in that it's a it's a quasi criminal piece of legislation. So in addition to fines for um, businesses, there's also the potential fines and even in, in imprisonment for officers and directors. So before you open the doors, make sure you're able to open the doors at this time. So, and Kelly. Okay, first thing you need to do is, now you've just, you, you realize you can open or you've been essential, but you've had everybody working from home and now you're gonna start to bring people back to the physical workplace. First thing you need to do is a, do a thorough cleaning, needless to say, right? You wanna make sure everybody's coming back into a, to a clean and uncontaminated workplace. You know, I, I know many businesses are, are outsourcing that to even if they have normal kind of cleaning services that would come in on a regular basis you know they're going to the sort of specialized cleaning services for the full um, you know the full uh, job so you have to think about that the other thing you want to have in place and you want to have communicated to all your employees before anyone comes back or when more people begin to come back is you want to have guidelines in place that make it a requirement that employees are to advise when they're ill or exhibiting any symptoms or if they've been exposed to anyone who uh, has contracted COVID-19. You want to have that clearly outlined before you start your return to uh, the physical workplace process. And you, you also want to specifically have in your policies that you know no one should be permitted to enter the workplace and that's your own people third parties anybody if they've been ordered or recommended to self-isolate if they have any symptoms of COVID-19 even if they haven't been diagnosed you know sore throat cough fever or if they live in the same residence as someone who has exhibited any of those symptoms and then then the other decision you have to make and a lot of this decision will be tempered on by what we discussed next is, is it gonna be an immediate or a gradual reopening? I can tell you for the most part, you know, um, it's, it's companies are doing it on a more gradual basis just to address some of the things like physical distancing and that, that we'll discuss and discuss in a little bit. But that's the first thing you have to decide. So, then the other thing you have to think about, well, you're, you're having people come back to work. You're having them come back to the physical workplace. Are, what does that mean? Is everybody just next Monday or, the mon or last Wednesday been required to come back? You know, before you left, you work Monday to Friday, nine to five in the office. Are you doing that with everybody at this time? Or are you... Um, going to uh, introduce the staggered return to the workplace for instance you know a lot of businesses where they're doing it there's various ways you can do it you know you can divide up your workforce into team a and team b you know team a is here these two weeks well team b continues to work from home and then following that you know team b is in team a is working from home do you do it like that do you or also do you do you stagger your start times right so you you know Physical distancing is still something that's uh, very important. Not every workplace, if everyone's there in the office, may not be able to adhere to that. So, you know, do you have the one thing, do you have different people in on different days? Or do you say, you know, crew A now works, you know, seven till three and crew B works, you know, noon till seven, whatever, day shift, night shifts, in a way to create that distancing that um, that can reduce the number of employees who are present at any given time which can assist in 
know, being compliant. Now, if you're changing, if you're considering changing hours of work or, um, you know, schedule or shifts, you have to be mindful of, you know, obligations you have with respect to, to making changes under the human rights code, as well as just the whole idea of a constructive dismissal. You know, I'm sure everybody had someone like me having to answer or well, speak to them about or asking questions about, you know, the temporary layoff, that whole concept of a constructive dismissal, right? Can the employer make a unilateral change to a, you know, a fundamental term or condition of employment? Um, and that can be on something, for instance, I had a client yesterday who's looking to bring back, they've been gradually returning um, their people back and they're down to, you know, about a dozen or so. And the one they wanted to know, they wanted the fellow to now work a night shift instead of a day shift. And, you know, the, the, the client said, well, the, 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 the employee's balking at doing that because they don't have transportation to and from the office or to and from the, uh, the factory. And it's like, you know, can we, can we force them to do it or not? Well, the, sh the quick answer to something like that is, was it a, you know, an express or an implied term of the employment relationship that you could change, you know, their schedules? If you could, you know, it was, uh, you know, you work day shift, you could work night shift, whatever, as the needs of the employer require. But for instance, if somebody's been working for you for 20 years and they've always worked nine to five, you know, you're, you're not really, unless they agree, you, you're taking on a fair bit of risk if you now tell them they're working the midnight to night shift. So those are the things you have to think about, and it's it's balancing act, right? You've got the considerations relating to keeping your employees safe and meeting your you know public health obligations and occupational health and safety obligations, but you still have to look at those and 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 judge and guide yourself within the general context around um, around uh, labor and employment law. So. Okay, the other practical matter, and you know, we were doing, we've, we're starting to have more people, more uh, lawyers and more staff come back to the office, and we're looking at it, and you know, do we have to make changes to the workplace configuration, you know? Obviously, right now, there's certain setups where if everybody was sitting as they were before, they're not, they're going to be within six feet of each other, or you have certain workstations which are, you know, between an office and a de facto walkway, right? They're not going to be, they're not six feet away from somebody walking through that. So what do you do? You adjust your floor plan um, in, in order to address this. Uh, other thing you have to think about is rearranging your common areas, kitchen, lunchroom, reception areas, boardrooms, washrooms to increase physical distancing. You've probably all seen it already in certain places where there may be a bank of chairs and, you know, or, you know, a row of chairs all connected in a reception area or a hallway or something. And, you know, everyone, every other one has been sort of taped off to ensure people maintain their physical distance. So you have to think about that as well. You know, you have to consider, is it, is it necessary for you to do that? Um, if you want to go to the next slide. Did it change? Uh, yes, it did. Okay. okay, somebody's asked a question about uh, what's the employee's right to refuse to return to work? That is something we're going to be talking about later in, in the webinar, so we'll leave that to, to then. Um, other thing to think about, uh, your entrances and exits, you know, how many do you have? Do you want to control those? Do you want to reduce those so that you know at any given time how many people are on the premises? And this, you know, if you've set a, a limit, for instance, as to how many people, given your physical circumstances, uh, you want in the workplace at any given time, you got, you know, do you want to have an access point so you know where that is? Um, you know, same thing. Do, are you going to need to have, you know, act, things you haven't had before, access cards, security? You've seen that in various places, right? Especially on the retail sector, which has remained open. 
uh, a lot of them you'll see that there may be a security guard or something outside the entrance so that they can control and monitor to make sure there's not more people in there than, than there should be. Um, other important thing with a sign-in sheet, for instance, in particular, if you're allowing visitors or third parties onto the premises, that's going to give you a record of who's been on site. And if there is later uh, a person, a visitor, an employee who has tested positive, you'll at least then be able to, um, you know, pass that information along to public health. And so people, everybody who would need to be aware of a possible exposure um, can become aware, can be made aware of it and, and advised accordingly. Something else that's real practical and it's, you know, and is that, is this going to impact, for instance, um, how many people you allow at your, have come back to work at once, what time you have to come back to work, you know, there's a, lots of bottlenecks, right? Even on a phys, on your, in your office, you can have bottleneck areas where they're narrow, but what about the elevators if you're in an office building, right? Um, I know, for instance, uh, in Hong Kong, obviously this happened uh, before, uh, previous to here, and I have a, a, a buddy who works for a multinational there, and when they, a while back, when they started reopening offices and that, they had strict rules as to how many people can be in an elevator at one time, and the elevator was of such a size, they could have four, but they all had to come in with their masks on and face the corner, like they've been naughty child children at work, right? And that's how it had to go up. And you're thinking if that's, you know, you're on the 30th floor, it's not practical to have everybody walking up and down the stairs. And even if they are, you've got the distancing issues. What's that, you know, are you gonna have rules in place around that? And how's that gonna impact everything else, right? So you gotta, it's not quite as straightforward and you have to think about it. Hey, Kelly. Okay, other things, for instance, you know, is do you need to install barriers, physical barriers, depending on the nature of your, of your configuration, your office, your activities, you know, where you see that most readily is the plexiglass that has gone into retail operations. Um, personal protective equipment, you know, are you going to make it recommended? Is it going to be required in the workplace? I've had a number of, uh, had a number of clients ask me, you know, for instance, can we make it mandatory for, you know, employees to have to wear masks when they're in the office? And, uh, you know, the answer to that is, sure, <laughs> like everything else in employment law, right? Yeah, generally speaking, you can have that as a rule, right? It's a private premises. It's, you could say, I'm going to require all my, all my employees to, to be masked when they're in the office, just either because you're concerned about physical distancing or you're, you know, just being more prudent or more cautious. But even with that, you know, general ability to do so, you have to also, you know, bear in mind, you know, what do you, you know, your obligations under the Human Rights Code, for instance, right? If, um, you know, if, if somebody has a medical condition, which, you know, anxiety or, you know, I've read about, you know, asthma, things such as that, where it, could be a uh, problematic for them to wear a mask, you know, that's no different than having to, a duty to accommodate somebody with any other kind of physical uh, disability or condition. So you have to be mindful of that. You know, uh, I'm not aware of any uh, faith-based uh, prohibitions on wearing a face mask, but if there was, that's something else you'll have to think about, right? So it's, you know, so the, you know, the answer to that is, you know, in general, sure, but you have to be mindful of uh, possibly making exceptions or considering, considering matters. Um, the other thing which is being, which I think most every workplace is doing to a certain extent, or the vast majority of them are, and we did it just last week in anticipation of, of more people coming back, is um, putting in directional signage and floor markings, right, so that now, to, you know, we've got some, you know, passageways to the, our elevator bank or into the kitchen where things are quite narrow. So now it's, you know, when you're on my side of the, of the floor, you know, you're going right to left and that takes you out through reception to the other side of the floor where they now have to go left to right. So you don't have people passing each other shoulder to shoulder. Something else you need to think about. Kelly? 
I think we may have missed, I think we may have skipped a slide. Yes, okay. Oh no, I'm my mistake. <laughs> Let's continue on. Okay, yeah, this is the one I thought we were going to. The other thing you have to think about is, again, the same thing with respect to third parties. Are you going to permit them in the premises? Under what circumstances? The, you know, this includes everything, right? Clients, vendors, suppliers. You know, what are you doing with deliveries? For instance, you know, we're not allowing couriers or delivery persons to come into the actual office. You know, we're fortunate. We've got an entire floor and the elevator opens up to a, a sort of a reception, you know, a hall bank area where we have restricted access to get into the offices from there. They're required to put the, put the items, the boxes down on a, on a trolley and to shift a suitably, you know, uh, staff member in gloves and what have you will then take it, move it to one of the boardrooms. It sits there for a day, two days, whatever we, I forget what the, what the timing is and then they're moved out, right? So just ways to think about reducing the risk of uh, potential infections. So these are, again, all the things you need to think about. And, uh, right. Other thing, you know, you're controlling your premises. You don't know what the heck may be going on at your suppliers or your clients or your vendors. So what, do you, what are you gonna do about that? Are you just, are you going to allow your employees to go full stop? Will there be restrictions put into place? Are there certain requirements being put into place? You know, it's inevitable. Some employees presumably at some point will need to go to other premises, but are you putting any parameters around that? You know, business travel, for instance, are you, for the, you know, are you going to allow it full stop now? Are you going to limit it in certain ways? If an employee is required to travel, you know, for business or even personal reasons, based on where they have to go, are you going to require them to, you know, self-isolate and work from home when they come back? Um, you know, those are the things you have to consider. I mean, I think what what we'll be seeing and continue to see are, you know, things to continue like this for some period of time. You know, I think the vast majority of meetings and interactions will continue to, to be through um, means other than in person, you know, unless it's absolutely necessary. Okay. Now you have to think about cleaning again, you know, you have the big clean when everybody, before everyone comes back, now on an ongoing basis, you know, you've got to have those procedures in place where employees are required to wipe down and disinfect their work, um, their work surfaces. You know, ideally to the extent you can, try not to have employees sharing, you know, tools. But if they, if they are, and that can be something as a, you know, physical tools in the machine shop, it can be a printer or a photocopier in an office environment, right? Certain things have to be, have to be shared. So you want to have things there, you know, materials there so that the employees can, um, wipe them down before the next use. Another thing that's real important, you got to think about those uh, high contact surfaces, right? Door handles, elevators, light buttons, light switches. You know, even when we've been on a very limited staff, we've had a, a schedule set up where somebody on, you know, every other hour or whatever it is, is their, their job is to then to go throughout the firm and wipe down all those, um, high contact surfaces, disinfect them all, right? You want to be doing everything you can. You know, you want to make available the hand sanitizer, wipes, soap, water, encourage the hand washing, all of that. There's a number, the government, uh, provincial government has a number of, uh, you know, very helpful posters we'll touch on in a minute. And you know, you'll see that now they're just being posted everywhere. Like I was talking about of HR for one of my clients the other morning and she said okay now that as we're finishing up she goes now it's my time to go and post some more posters right so it's all education getting that out there another thing clients have thought about or thinking about and looking into is what what are your what's your HVAC like you know has has it been reviewed uh, examined recently is it practical or possible to make any changes or adjustments there in order to 
improve uh, air circulation and ventilation just to make it a little safer in the workplace. Something else to consider if you're in a leased premises, something to address with your landlord. Okay. Now, obviously it goes without saying, I think everybody's, if they didn't learn shortly after March, you know, shortly after March 16th, they certainly have now is that employers are all having to think about things and consider operating in ways that they never previously were necessary, wouldn't have even been anticipated. And so you could have been the most diligent employer when it came to manuals, handbooks, policies, procedures. There's a whole bunch of things now that you're having to deal with that you've never had to deal with before. And as with anything else, it's very important to come, you know, have, th have things documented, have things clearly documented so that your employees, your visitors, your third parties are aware of it. You need in effect really to have a COVID-19 manual for, you know, for your back to work, uh, your return to work process. So you want to have that uh, made available to your employees. Now, the other thing to bear in mind, and this is just something you know, it just in general, right? The whole process, it's, it's, it's not enough. You know, for instance, if you're fa anyone who's ever an organization that ever has faced an occupational health and safety prosecution, right? It's not sufficient just to say, oh yeah, we have a health and safety manual, right? Or we have a policy that says, you can't do this, you can't do that. You've, it's, it's, a, it's a, really the way I explain it is it's, it's this process of perpetual motion. Right, and it's this, it'll be the same with um, you know requirements, policies, and procedures around returning to the office. Um, you need to have you need to have the policies and procedures in place. Now, to be able to do that practically, you need to have been examine you know examining your workplace, comparing what you know what are we do what is the work, how is it done, what are the health and safety or other requirements placed on us in order to do those that work. Come up with your policies and procedures. You then have to train your employees on the policies and procedures. You then have to monitor, supervise those policy, employees on policies and procedures. You have to discipline as is required. And then on an ongoing basis, you gotta be reviewing everything you're doing to see if any of your, the way you work or what you're doing has changed. And therefore that leads to a revision or amendment or additions to policies and procedures. And that's what has to be done here. It's, it's not enough just to have these things. You have to be able to show that you're training your employees. And as with anything else, you want to document that training. You know, you want to be able to show that Dan received this manual on what's today, May 27th. And, you know, there was a training session on it. And then it was revised uh, next February and you got it on February 4th, right? Same, it's, it's the one thing that comes up and in a way it's kind of fortunate, you know, there'll be new developments in legislation or there'll be new fact scenarios like this or even previously with the, the legalization of, uh, of marijuana. And it was like, oh my, you know, clients sometimes are just like, what do we do? What do we do? I don't know how to handle this. The fortunate thing is the, the general labor and employment law parameters continue to apply you just have to apply them to the new developments and new circumstances, and that's certainly what you have to do here. And again, and you know, as with any other policy and procedure, if if you're putting into place physical distancing requirements, if uh, you know, if you know, limits on when people can be in the office, can't be in the office, and employees aren't. Um, adhering to those, well then, and that's a disciplinary matter, just like anything else, just like the failure to follow any other policies and procedures, you need to treat that just as you would any other matter uh, of progressive discipline. So, you know, that's important to bear in mind as well. Now, this relates to a question that was asked earlier. You're starting to open or reopen or expand and you may find that some workers refuse to return to the workplace due to the fear of contracting COVID-19. Uh, 
I, I just flipped for this, for the purpose of the work refusal, I, if you follow on the slides, I've been saying employees, now I say I'm worker. The only reason I do that is just to highlight that uh, a business's or obligations under OSHA applies not just to employees, but also, you know, the workers that are present. But, you know, generally we just use employee interchangeable in this context, but, but just to be mindful of that. So, so, and I've already had clients come to me with this concern right from the outset. People are saying, you know, they're afraid to, to return to the work or they don't want to come to work. They're afraid of uh, contracting COVID-19. Um, thus far, the ministry has not, you know, made specific amendments or to, to OSHA to address COVID-19 matters, but that doesn't matter. You know, there's a number of obligations which are already in place on businesses, which needless to say, will apply to COVID-19 related matters. So, Kelly. Okay, and sort of the one thing that we'll talk about work refusals more in, in a moment, but one thing that is helpful that the provincial government has done to assist employers in, you know, generally what they need to do, what they need to think about when reopening or continuing to operate, couple of weeks back, maybe about three weeks back now, I believe, uh, the provincial government actually released 56 separate guidelines in order to provide health and safety guidelines to businesses. They were done, prepared in association with four different provincial health and safety organizations. They provide recommendations around hygiene, physical distancing, sanitation, you know, procedures if employees become ill. As part of your sort of re return to work uh, planning, it's helpful to review these. They're broken down by industry or type of work. But the one thing that there, there's no over, you know, they're, they're helpful, but it's a bit of a scattered approach. You know, there's not one overriding or umbrella uh, guideline oh can we go can we go to the next slide please kelly and there'll be many guidelines that'll apply to an you know a business you know for instance of the the example i give is you're you're just a regular office environment while there's a guideline relating to the office sector in general there's a guideline specific for office administration and secretarial staff there's another guideline for warehouse workers. There's a guideline for executive and management employees who would, you know, many of them work in an office environment, as well as guidelines for sales and customer service representatives. So they all could be applicable. And, you know, even with the you know, workplace violence and harassment policies and procedures, right? You have to draft those based on the nature of your work. Do you have remote, do you have remote employees? Do you operate, you know, you have members of the public, do you handle cash, all of those things. Same with this, there's many different guidelines. Now the nice thing is on the provincial government's website, they have them all listed by heading and you can see which ones may apply to you and take a look at them. Okay, Kelly. And now just real quickly, these are the sectors that if you just quickly go this slide, next slide, those are the sectors that are that are specifically identified. Now, obviously, one sector is office, which could apply to you know a plethora of different types of businesses. The one thing that you'll notice too that they say on, on every one of these 56 guidelines say at the top is, "We're not providing you legal advice." <laughs> so, the thing to bear in mind is, you know, it won't be sufficient. Like if there ever was an occupational health and safety prosecution, it's not going to be a not going to be sufficient in and of itself just to say, well, yeah, I read the office admin worker guideline and did what it said there, right? So you, you've still got to, as you would just generally, you know, you need to be proactive. You need to keep up to date on all announcements and guidelines. You know, as I say, these, these guidelines were released, say, three weeks ago. As we've seen throughout what may have been thought as best practice, Oh, look at masks, right? <laughs> no need to wear masks. Uh, maybe if you feel like it, wear a mask. Now we really think you should wear a mask. You know, things are changing based on, you know, based on what they're realizing, what the science is showing. And so something that may have been, you know, 
belts and suspenders advice on April 30th may not be on May 27th. So you, you're doing the same thing with respect to all the various government programs, right? You have to be mindful of it. You have to be on top of them. Seek advice wherever you seek your normal occupational health and safety law advice. If it's a lawyer, consultant, your health and safety manager at work, it's an ongoing process. So that's the one thing about that. This, um, as I said, that's just the link which will take you to, um, to all the uh, guidelines as well as the posters that I mentioned earlier. So if you, if you can go, go to that later, that'll get you there. So now going back, so that's sort of just sort of the set in the table for the, the work refusal. Now under OSHA, and again, it doesn't have to be amended for COVID-19 because it's already there, a worker can refuse to work if they believe it's dangerous. And they, and they also, to, when, they're, when they're doing that, when they're exercising their, their work refusal right, they don't have to demonstrate that they're actually at risk you know, at that very moment or if to do something at that time. It's just if they believe it's a if the work is dangerous. Now, traditionally, work refusals relate to, and I've dealt with oh, more than I can remember over the years. Um, they deal with, you know, it's usually equipment is unsafe or machinery is unsafe in the workplace. Um, you know, obviously, this will be a little different than that. And for, not even, but it's not enough. It's not. You know, an employee just can't say, I don't feel safe. I believe this is dangerous. Therefore, you know, I can exercise a work refusal full stop and require all kinds of things to be done. No. General fear of returning to work will not usually justify a work refusal. It, you know, you have, there has to be some objective proof that, that the, uh, the workplace is unsafe. So, Kelly. But if right now you have an employee who is uh, refusing to come to work or continue to work because of COVID-19 related concerns, you have, to, you have to treat it like you would any other work refusal, all right? You have to do an investigation into the claim. You need to report that claim to the employee, to the uh, Joint Health and Safety Rep or the Joint Health and Safety Committee, depending on what you have based on the size size of your, your operations, you want to document your investigation just like you would as well. You know, for COVID-19 related fears, it's going to be a bit of a broader examination, right? You're going to examine the workplace, whatever the practice and procedure that the employee feels is causing the risk, and then you'd have to evaluate, are we doing everything that's um, been re recommended or required from a health and safety perspective? So you do all of this, you make your report. Kelly, if you wanna go to the next one. The employee still continues to refuse to work. What do you do then? You contact the Ministry of Labor, just like you would in any other work refusal. You tell them that we have an employee work refusal under OSHA, they will send out an uh, MOL investigator um, and they will do an investigation. Now, there, there were like back in SARS, there were work refusals. Uh, for the most part based on people who were dealing with members of the public were demanding masks or gloves there's already been work refusals in even back in april march with respect to covid 19 related matters again usually related to ppes or the uh, fear of uh, secondary exposure right you know somebody at work you know had contact with somebody who may have been exposed you know, not in the workplace, but just in general. And, you know, work refusals are, have been happening. There was one, a very large one at an auto processing plant in Windsor a little while ago where I think it was 166 employed workers. That's why I said approximately 165 because I can't remember exactly the number, but they, they did a one day work refusal because one of their coworkers had uh, a secondary expo exposure to COVID-19 and they were worried. Ministry of Labor investigated. Every, the, the employer was doing everything that had been recommended or mandated. The ministry con inspector concluded this was an not a proper work refusal and therefore the employees had to get themselves back to work. And if they don't, and if the ministry 
has deemed it to be an improper work refusal, then it be can become a disciplinary matter. But that's the process you have to go through if you're facing work refusals based on safety concerns. Now, uh, with the next slide, you get the other side of the coin. So you, you, and I know I've already got clients and we've even had people in our office, some of the staff who, you know, don't mind this working from home, cutting down on the commute and, uh, you know, having to spend so much on dry cleaning because you got the work clothes or whatever. And, you know, they're not, they're asking or requesting or pseudo demanding to continue to work from home just as a matter of personal preference. So, you know, the question is, again, what do you do if you're an employer, if you're faced with that request slash demand? First thing you got to do is see, do you have any policies in place currently that address working from home um, that were there even before COVID-19? I've had a couple of employers and, you know, you'll, and the whole idea of work from home has really kind of ebbed and flowed over the last number of years where it was seen as this wonderful panacea where, you know, some, especially in the tech sector, was like, yeah, everybody can work from home. It's all wonderful. And then it became less wonderful. And, you know, a lot of organizations were requiring people to um, work from home less or not work from home anymore. Uh, but if you still have a policy that says everybody can work from home whenever they want, you're going to have a bit of a problem. You could have an issue if you're trying to stop that from happening. Or in the employment agreement, you know, does does it say that they're working from a home office? They're not. You've got to be mindful of all that. Generally speaking, where an employee, you know, subject to those provisos, you know, you have the discretion as an employer to say, no, Dan, you know, the the unique circumstances have passed we need you to come back we need you to work from the office that's our choice in doing that again you just need to be mindful of uh, you know human rights concerns um you know why is the employee saying no you know is it a, a reason that would be a prohibited ground of discrimination under family status you know i'm not gonna uh, you know this isn't the time to go into the full discussion on it but you know, health, you know, childcare concern. Could that be a reason? Maybe yes, maybe no. You need, you know, just because someone has a child, childcare obligations, it doesn't mean they automatically can now say, I have to work this shift or I have to work that shift. There may be accommodation required that may, may not be based on the specific facts. That's when you need to speak to me or whoever else, or whoever you normally get your, your labor and employment law advice from to discuss that. But that's something else you're going to have to consider if you are going to allow it, uh, Kelly. If you are going to allow it, deal with it in writing. The biggest problem employers have run into over the years for things where they're allowing people to work modified schedules, you know, three days a week, four days a week, work from home, they haven't reserved the right to, to end it if it's in the employer's interest to do so. And you face the circumstance where, well, you know, unfortunately, employer, you agreed, and really now it's an amended term of the employment relationship that Dan only has to work three days a week, or Dan can work from home full stop. You don't wanna take away that flexibility from yourself to man be able to manage and require people to, adjust, you know, to go back to a schedule that works for you, you want to make sure that you have any agreements to this effect in writing, reserving your rights. Okay. And Kelly. Okay. Now, the other thing people have to bear in mind is we're at a point now where some employees have already been on temporary layoff for two months or pretty close to two months. And notwithstanding, what may be happening with the pandemic at a certain point a temporary lay even you know even if uh, if an employee even if the employee is ex leaving aside the constructive dismissal argument even if an employee has accepted the temporary layoff at a certain point a temporary layoff becomes a termination currently in ontario under the employment standards act a, a layoff 
the temporary layoff can be for up to 13 weeks in a 20 week period without it being deemed to be a termination. If, you pro if you're an employer who provides benefits to your employees and you've provided them from the outset of the uh, layoff, then the layoff can be as long as 34 weeks in a 52 week period. Uh, Kelly? But, you know, not all employers do provide employee benefits and not all thought to do so from the outset. So for those people, those people on layoffs, at, th at once the 13 week uh, bar is met, that's a termination. And I had a client email me earlier today, they're starting the gradual return to work. And the one question was, uh, for the people we laid off that we're not ready to call back by the 13 week mark, can we give them benefits now to extend it? And the answer to that's no had to do it from the outset. So, you know, if you get to that point, if you get to week 13, or, you know, hopefully it won't come to this, you get to week 34 and uh, you still can't recall people and that term, that layoff becomes a termination, then your obligation to the employer, employee, I'm sorry, is just as if it did, you'd chosen to just terminate on a with a, without cause basis in the normal course. So. At a minimum, the employee is going to be entitled to receive whatever notice of termination they're entitled to under the Employment Standards Act, Kelly. And you know, if you don't have an employment agreement in place that limits the employee to statutory minimum, they're going to be then also entitled to reasonable notice at common law. Or if you have an, a, an agreement with the employee that's more than the stat, but something specific, you're, you're going to be required to to incur those termination costs. So what I've been talking with a lot with my clients now, we're, because for a lot of them, mid-June, they're gonna be hitting the 13 week mark, is how do we, how do we prevent that? How do we prevent um, them having to face a circumstance where they're gonna deal with a whole bunch of termination costs, which at this point in time in particular, they're not, uh, anywhere in a position where they'd want to be able to do that well can can you can you rely on the wage subsidy to first first of all to recall some employees right uh can you you know you can recall them even retroactively and take advantage of the wage some subsidy um you know is that going to allow you to get people back to work so you stop that clock on the 13 and 20 right they've been on layoff eight weeks now the the wage subsidy has been extended to the end of August. Can you bring them back? And even if at the end of August you do need to lay off again, you you, you know you're not you're going to be your that 20 week period is rolling, so it may give you a whole bunch of extra breathing room with respect to a termination. Can you do rolling layoffs? Right. So so far you've only laid off a percentage of your employees, or you're only able to recall a percentage of your employees you start slicing and dicing that you know so these employees haven't been laid off yet these ones have do you recall those people and then lay off these people um you know if at the end of the day you're um in a circumstance where you're gonna have to terminate where you you're, you're left with no option that you've tripped over the, the the time limits and their terminations before you get there you need to get some advice as to um, what your obligations are, right? What would that entail? If these these 25, these 100, these 10 employees, they all be, I've got to get rid of 40% of them. How do you make that decision, right? So, Kelly? Okay, so what you want to do, needless to say, you want to minimize those costs. So you consider, you know, do any, are any of these employees limited to the statutory notice? Are any, you know, do any of these employees have other agreements in place which, which aren't as bad as full common law? If you're, if everyone's entitled to notice a common law, what's the range? And to what extent can I arrange the terminations, which are, you know, will be difficult for anyone, not to minimize the impact on an individual of being terminated, but instead of having, you know, $100,000 of termination costs, is it able to, are you able to reduce that to some, you know, lesser amount? 
The other thing to think about, and I won't go into it in detail now, is an employee, even if they're terminated on a without cause basis, they have a duty to mitigate by finding alternate employment, which can also include a return to work. So someone said has quit because of a constructive or you've had to terminate somebody on, you know, because of this three, four months down the road, business has improved and you're able to bring them all back, make that offer, even if they've been terminated before, if nothing else to try to mitigate or stop the clock running, running on your, on your damages, right? Now, what I keep expecting to happen, but it hasn't happened yet, although I do keep expecting that it will, is the provincial government will hopefully temporarily amend the Employment Standards Act to extend the non-benefit length of layoff without before it's deemed to be a termination from that to something larger than the 13 weeks it is now. Hasn't happened yet. It, on the beginning of the month, BC, which had a 13 and 20 uh, requirement as we do, doesn't have the benefit to extend it to 34. They extended it from 13 to 16. Very early on, Alberta, which had a really short period of time, you could temporarily lay off of uh, 60 days, extended it to 120 days. And Manitoba has also made amendments, temporary amendments to, to its employment standards code for when a, a layoff becomes a termination. Uh, Kelly? So at this point though, that hasn't happened. And this is why it's important for you to be, if you have anybody on layoff, you need to, um, you need to, you know, get the, you need to diarize in advance of when that may be a termination. Hopefully that 13 weeks will be extended. Hasn't been yet though. And if it isn't in the next week or so, there's gonna be some, some employers out there that are gonna to have to deal with the first wave of terminations. And you can't wait for the day before. And you definitely don't wanna wait till the day after the 13 weeks before you, before you become mindful of that. I know it's a lot to take in, right? You know, how am I you know, thinking about how, I do, how do I bring everyone back? How do I keep everything safe? Am I able to do this? Am I able to do that? You know, they've got all these, this wage subsidy goes till August or, you know, the CERB goes till October. So therefore I should be fine. No, you still have to be mindful of those, uh, those termination dates. Um, shoot, we're bang on an hour. It's my contact info. There are some other questions. I'll, I'll do my best to, uh, to follow up on those. Um, if anybody has any other questions, feel free to reach out. We, what we can do to help. Uh, again, I'd like to thank Kelly and Tap Connects for the opportunity to speak to everyone today. And uh, I thank everyone who's uh, logged on. Everybody have a good day. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks. Uh, thank, thank you, everybody, for joining thank us. You. And Dan, thank you for uh, answering yeah. that. And if anybody has any other questions, please make sure you reach out to, uh, to Dan there. I think, uh, I think you've got them all answered. Um, the, actually, the only one someone. here is I wanted to ask, uh, and maybe maybe it's not a right one. I think Sean had asked this one. Um, if you have somebody who was exposed, like how do you go about um, doing that? Can you require that they be tested? Well, you, how do you ask I mean, that? Well, yeah. Well, what would you if someone's been exposed? Well, there's various requirements, right? If 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 the exposure was in the workplace, you've got a you've got an obligation to no, notify the Ministry of Labor. Um, you can contact Public Health and see what they recommend. If at a minimum, you're going to require them to self isolate, right? So, um, I think another one came in. Um, we have a 70-acre site to conduct government exams. The examiners are contractors. So are you able to keep safety distance? They're able to keep a safety distance in the field. So their, their contractors follow safety procedures, but someone happens to have been tested positive as a result of working with us. What are liabilities for you as a business? Sorry, I, there's someone else talking, so I missed that question. Yes, sorry. Sorry. Um, um, if 
if somebody, I guess really if somebody happens to have been tested as a result of coming in and working with you, what are you as an, or as a build business, how are you liable? Well, there's, I mean, if, if, if someone's been exposed in your workplace, then the question becomes, did you properly have the procedures in place to, to monitor that, to deal with that, right? I mean, potentially liable, it would depend, right? It would depend on what's there, what was done, what wasn't done. Okay, perfect. And then I think the last one was, um, what are guidelines? If you had a, an employee that was stuck somewhere and now they, they've come back, so they were on vacation, but they ended up staying or were stuck in the country that they were on vacation. When they come back, but the whole office has already gone back to the office, what are the guidelines for them actually being on payroll during the self-isolation period? Well, it would depend on whether or not that, well, it would depend on many things. I mean, if they can, if it's a type of position where they can work from home, then you would set them up to work from home. Um, if, if, you know, if you have, uh, you know, paid day absence, you know, paid sick days, do you apply those to them? Do you allow an employee to use um, additional vacation days to cover those days so they're still in pay? I mean, it, it, it depends, but all, it, it would depend, but obviously you're going to have them self-isolate and then you have to do a, an analysis as to whether or not it's the type of position where work could be done remotely. Okay, perfect. And then um, I think if you just had the second part of a question, so um, if everything was done properly on your end from social distancing, et cetera, and so forth, is the business still liable and would you have to pay for medical expenses? Well, not in this country. Okay. There you go. Right. I mean, I'm not quite sure about that question. Okay. Okay. Perfect. I think that's all of the questions that had come up here. So, fantastic. Um, thank you very much for your time, Dan. And thank you for everybody for joining us as well. And have a fantastic Wednesday. Take care. Thank have you. a great day. Thanks. Take care. Bye.